you're about to enter seventh heaven. If you like this pod, then you can show your support by rating us five stars and hitting that little subscribe button to help us climb the pod rankings and spread the sevens gospel. If you're looking for extra content, you can go to our YouTube page or our social channels, Twitter and Instagram, our handle at seventh heaven pod. Again, like, subscribe, share, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Seventh Heaven, your celestial one-stop shop for all things sevens, where we're coming to you the day that should have been the beginning of the Tokyo Olympics, men's rugby sevens. COVID, as we know, though, has put paid to that, but fittingly, Seventh Heaven's never say die attitude means we're bringing you some very special content to mark the festival of sport that should have been. So keep your eyes peeled on our social channels. We shall be bringing you exclusive interviews and footage via our YouTube channel and Instagram at Seventh Heaven Pod. So give it a like, give it a share, give it a subscribe, and you won't miss out on any of the action. Plenty to look forward to, but for now, let's be present and unravel why Sevens is the most demanding sport in the world. And for this, we've recruited a pair from England and Team GB's Inner Sanctum who make mind, body, and soul work in sweet harmony. Oi, oi, Burnsy, the boy. <laughs> On a more positive note, Burnsy, I'm really happy to see you back with the normal mic. You got the new swanky mic and you thought you were the dog's doodars. You were mic discipline all over the place. No one knew when you were speaking. No one knew when you wanted to speak. You were butting in on everyone and I'm glad you're back. It changed him, actually, I think. Burnsy, see, you've already forgotten the rules. I was about to speak. You've you've forgotten the rules. It's changed him, Chip, hasn't it? Him having the fancy mic coming over the top and he was just swanning around like he's in a pro pro studio forgetting the humble roots of Seventh Heaven. Do you know what? Irrespective of what mic I had last time out, it was impossible to get a word in edgeways with Mitch. You even, I even asked the question to the boys to open up the conversation and he said, do you know what, actually, I'd like to start with a different question. And then you overrid my question and then couldn't wrestle the mic back off you. It was like watching you play seven. <laughs> very fair. Very, very fair, Burnsy. We're like the Backstreet Boys. It's just become one big struggle for power over who wants to be the front man. I am not in this struggle here. I am very happy to be in the company of two great podcasters. And I'm just happy to be hanging on to your coattails. You two driving the standards. I'm just bringing the bant. Well, it's interesting you say that, Chip, because I'm feeling, and I don't know about you, Mitch, hashtag blessed to be on Chippy's podcast because the RPA Instagram this week that uh, Chippy's got his own podcast called Seventh Heaven Pod, which is... Bernsey, I'll tell you what, it's lovely of him to let us on every week, isn't it? Like, it's just lovely of him to have us on every time. It's really good of him. It's really tough, um, like, knowing what, how to, like drop it in because obviously I know like Mitch you are the same you've done loads of media work and you've never dropped seventh heaven in so like, I didn't really know how to do it so I just when I said it I just said oh it's my podcast because I thought well no one knows who Burnsy is apart from anyone apart from the other 34 people who did the marathon de Sables. um and, and the and Mitch, 
and the under nine bees and Mitch has never dropped it in um, also I've been quite busy you know keeping a kid alive starting a business looking for new jobs times are tough welcome welcome to the real world chip yeah, we're all we're all experiencing that, Bernsey. Let's not bring that one up. First point of business: the emoji sevens team quiz that we did last week. Did you boys get involved? Could you do all fourteen? No, I am terrible at stuff like that. <laughs> I, mean, I have the whole family were doing it on the WhatsApp. They were all they were all going for them on the family WhatsApp. Took them took them most of the day. It's good good to get engagement. Well, they should have slid into the DMs like Will Latham and Tom Bridger Shilvers. He successfully named all 14 players in both teams and they have won themselves some Seventh Heaven merch. Merch! The merch is, the merch is coming, boys. Yes. It, yeah, the merch for the listeners isn't yet here. We haven't seen the merch, but there will be merch. We've been promised it for a while now, actually, Chip, haven't we? Yeah, I've been waiting. Bernsey, you've told me all sorts. Baggy swag t-shirts, snapbacks, all sorts. Nothing. That's the only reason I know, agreed I, to do the I, podcast, because you said there'd be merch. Stash. Well, I created the quiz on a whim and threw out the prospect of a prize. And then when people actually got it, I was backed into a corner and having conversations with them in the DMs. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you've, you've won some Seventh Heaven merch, which obviously doesn't exist yet. But we're going to get on the case and we're going to design some and send it out to you. And I think we're also going to send some to Connor Braid of Canada and Tomasi Alessio of Samoa, who were the two World Series boys to get involved with the challenge and actually complete it as well. Connor Braid was loving it. Also, Tomasi, one of our faithful listeners, one of the top listeners. Top lad. Good on him. Oh, he got one of his shirts. One of the top listeners. Um, right, boys, let's start with a bit of real talk. The Telegraph, good of them to print an exclusive on Thursday that... It looks like the England Sevens contracts are not going to be renewed for five months. Interesting use of the word exclusive when they could have been tuning into the pod for the last three months, but we'll give it to you guys. We'll give it to you, The Telegraph. How do you feel, guys? What kind of question is that? How do you feel? Yeah. How do you what feel? Do you, think? you ain't got a job. <laughs> have you seen, the question for you, Bernsey, is have, have you seen Dumb and Dumber? Yes. We got no jobs. We got no money. Our pets' heads are falling off. Is, <laughs> this is, is where we're at at the moment. All right. So, are you hoping this is going to free us up for more time on the podcast, Bernsey? Well, lockdown certainly hasn't hasn't meant that so far. So I'm not expecting any change. You boys are impossible to pin down at the best of times. So heaven forbid if you have to get a proper job. This is what he's doing, Chip. He's getting now. We're on the live recording. He's uh, getting out there to the listeners that he's the he's the glue that holds it together. But we know, we know what goes on behind the scenes. We do know. Bernsey flapping like a bloody stuck quail. You should go into pol- you should go into politics because you're impossible to get a straight answer out. I ask you a question, you just deflect back back on me. And we're nowhere near the truth. So, Bernsey, I'll tell you. We'll leave the I'll, contract I'll, talk there. Bernsey, I'll tell you how I'm feeling now. A man down. Um, I know I'm smiling now, but I just because I'm seeing your face. But uh, yeah, well, I think everyone's the same. We're all we're all pretty man down about not having contracts. Like, it's pretty bleak. Um, it doesn't seem fair. But that that's just the initial response. Like, they are a viewer of business, and they've made their call. Um, obviously taking the emotion out of it on their part. 
Um, see you later, Sevens, and see you, see you in February or whenever it, whenever it will be. If there's even chance for us to come back, as Berge and Mitch both said in the in their interview, spoke pretty well about it. It's it's a tough world out there to get a job. Um, even tougher when you're asking, can you have a job for a couple of months and then come and then leave and then keep on training and then get back in and then be in best shape for the probably the biggest tournament of your life. So, yeah, it's a it's a tough situation we're in. Um, being frank about it. Um, not in a great place, but I'm like I'm trying to take the positives. I think you summed up very well there, Chip. I mean, we've all been kind of dealing with the, we've already sort of dealt with a lot of the emotions anyway, because it's not as if we've suddenly been told this. We've seen it coming. So um, you've got to find the uh, you've got to find the positives, find the opportunities that are out there, and um, hopefully a lot of the boys will get some rugby somewhere, and um, you know maybe a chance to explore other things as well. I don't know. Um, but I'm still confident that we'll be able to do something, uh, you know, something amazing. Like I'll say it now and maybe it'll manifest that we'll get something amazing with Team GB down the line in preparation for Tokyo. Um, you know, who knows? Who knows what can happen? On the topic of Team GB, I've, uh, I've had my sparrows, my squirrels out collecting information from the rugby world and i've heard a rumor that scotland have okayed in principle for team gb to operate in the year build up to tokyo 2021 not for not beyond that but for next year and currently the decisions with uk sport but i've got a question for you what is the incentive for uk sport to put their hand in their pocket and support the team gb cause when they're essentially propping up an already established sport I think the answer is maybe around the medal prospect for sevens. Uh, I don't know what their criteria is for distributing the funding, but the medal prospect's got to be one of them. Um, it's a very popular sport in this country. Uh, you know, rugby is is a huge participation sport. So there's a couple of reasons, but I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs, I'm afraid, Burnsy. I know you got us on here. I know we're supposed to be the talent, and that's a word you use, not me. Um, but we, uh, we don't have all the answers. And you know that. We've been podcasting for over a year now. Oh, no, not even. Not even. Not even. Not God, even feels, feels that longer. Feels that longer. Anniversary just, coming up in December, boys. Just the way Birdsey's aged. <laughs> I've Benjamin Buttoned. I've Benjamin Buttoned. Look how fresh-faced I look at the moment. You actually look great. It must be, must be getting back to work, getting back to the school, doing the coaching. It's been good for you. Genuinely has. Being outside on the pitches, coaching the boys in the sunshine, fresh air every day, actually having purpose. I know that we've been doing the pod and it's been great, but having something where you wake up in the morning, you get in your car, you drive to work and you do what you do and go home and you feel satisfied by it makes, makes a world of difference. Even takes, even takes 20 years off me, so I'm now looking about 50. But you know that now as well, Chip, because you're coaching. Yep, started up a little coaching business, so kind of bespoke sessions, one-on-one, -on -one. give me a little plug-in now. So one-on-one -on -one stuff uh, and group sessions. So the one-on-one -on -one stuff's kind of what the people want, like what whatever the lads want to work on and girls want to work on. And the group stuff's more fun activities, getting getting a ball through your hands and just getting a bit of coding. Um, it's been hard, but it's been a drought of rugby. Um, so everyone enjoying it. Sorry, so you're not your new business is not coaching podcasting. It's coaching rugby. No, I thought that I thought it was coaching podcasting. No, I've been uh, giving Burnsy free tips for the last uh, six, six, six months. Oh, okay, all right, all right. Oh, 
Okay, I'm confused. Right, before, I thought you meant right, to coach just... what you're good at. <laughs> Very good. Right, before you two um, get, get, go to uh, blows, shall we talk about the guests we've got on today? Or Yes. Or do you want to do the proper intro afterwards, Benzie? Um, no, I think I think, that, I think that I think they're very, very professionally personal to you two. So I'm going to hand over the introductory reins to you both. It's a first on the Seventh Heaven Pod. Uh, in the clouds, we always like a first. We like to challenge ourselves. So today we've got two guests on streaming in from the same venue for the first time, the same location, and it's a beautiful love story actually with Sevens. And we've got a couple, a high-performing couple. Yeah, Katie Warner, probably one of the most kind-hearted people I've ever met. Thoughtful. She's um, top of her game psychologist. She's worked with uh, Team GB canoeing, I believe. Um, she's worked with Bath Rugby, England Rugby, all over the shop. Um, years of experience, a wealth of knowledge. One of the nicest people you'll ever meet. I think I'll go as far to say that. Um, and has personally helped me through one of the darkest moments in my career post Rio. Um, and she's been there for me for years. And now I'd call her a friend, um, being as we're not really involved in the sevens anymore. Um, so, uh, Kate, that's my sum up for Katie Warner. And the second guest is her other half, her worst half, Remy Mobed. Remy, one of the best physios out there, uh, practitioners like you know, he's really in the top of his game. He's got an amazing journey into it, which I'll let him talk about. Worked in loads of different environments, which is no doubt part of his success in rugby, um, but also a top guy and someone again, who's become friend of ours, which is a really special thing. It's awesome to work with people who are in your support staff that then become your good friends. So it's a pleasure for us to, to be able to get them on today. And I really appreciate their time. So without further ado, Bernsey, should we, should we call them in? Yeah, let's do this, boys. Now, you're used to us bringing you the biggest names in the game, players and coaches alike. But this week, we're going to bring you two who you've probably never heard of. But it doesn't mean they're any less important to the success on the field. Physio Remy Mobed is England 7's program lead. And Katie Warriner is the lead performance psychologist for England 7's. Two fascinating people. We hope you enjoy. One night in heaven, one night in heaven. Guys, wonderful to finally have a couple of experts in seventh heaven because between Chippy the philosopher and Mitch, who feels the necessary pathway to athletic reflection perfection must involve removing his shirt for any workout. Finally, we've got a pod partnership that can actually dispense some knowledge worthwhile listening to. So Remy, Katie... Thanks for joining us in Seventh Heaven. Great to have you. Absolute, absolute pleasure to be here. And Joe, just to clarify, Mitch doesn't only just take his top off when he's working out. It's at lunchtime. In psychology. In psychology, in meetings. <laughs> Any opportunity Mitch gets, that top is off. Pants off, fella. <laughs> no pants, no treatment, Mitch. You know the score. That's true. That was actually the first rule I think I learned at England Sevens in the physio room. I heard someone say no pants, no treatment. I was like, that's a strange rule. And then when I went in and tried to get treatment when I was going commando, I realized there was a reason for the no pants, no treatment thing. <laughs> right. So, guys, the reason that we have you on uh, and you're both covering both mind, body and soul, shall we say, because you're the lead 
performance experts surrounding the body and also the psychology of England Sevens. You've also worked with Team GB. And Katie, I'm right in saying that you've done some work with Bath, which would lead me to assume that you're well-versed in hypnotism because that would put to bed the mystery of how Rory McConaughey got signed by that lot back in the day. Um, but what we want to explore is why sevens is the most demanding game in the world and especially with the Olympics that should have been round the corner after this weekend. We really want to touch on the physical and mental demands on the athletes and what is the difference that takes players from great to elite. Now, rather than just drop that into you. I suppose a good starting point, like the reason you guys are both, uh, well, so good at your jobs, we'll get that in now. That's the only compliment you're getting for the next bit of time. One of the reasons you're, you're so uh, well-placed to answer that question is because you've had such varied backgrounds as well, and you've worked in loads of different environments. Um, probably kick off with you, Rem, because... Uh, what was your route into rugby? Do you want to say a bit about that? Because you, you definitely worked outside of sport in some pretty cool environments as well, didn't you? Yeah, so I guess I worked at Wasps as, as a young junior um, and then progressed onto the senior team and then just got fed up of it, really, and decided to run away with the circus, quite literally. Um, so ran away and worked for Cirque du Soleil for three years. And um, I guess that experience alone and the different injuries that I saw in the different environments um, with what those athletes could actually do with their bodies rather than you lot. Just like me, just like me, flexibility like me. What, what would Chippy do in the circus? What would, what would his role be in the circus? Oh no, there are clowns in the circus. So. I thought you were gonna say weightlifter then. You know, like the strong man. But I guess just working in all of these different environments, um, Cirque being one, AFL being another, football being another, by doing that, it just allows you to really hone your skills and I guess see many different varieties of injuries and the mechanisms of how they occur. And then you're almost prepared for the madness world that Sevens brings, I think. So what for people might be wondering, what does the physio do in, in Cirque du Soleil? With regard to Cirque, actually, some of my most traumatic injuries that I've seen throughout my career have been in Cirque. So, you know, you guys roll your ankles, you tear your ACLs, whatever, on the field. But when an artist at Cirque may roll their ankle, they're doing it from a 20-foot drop because they've got something wrong midair and landing on a hard stage rather than a, a grass, muddy, pillowed surface, if you like. So, so some of the injuries that I actually saw at Cirque were way beyond the trauma that I've seen on a rugby pitch, believe it or not. Well, we got you on the most traumatic injuries, Rem. Give us it. Gory injuries. Worst one you've seen. Obviously, I've got to keep patient confidentiality, but I mean, you, so, two, you two tick a lot of boxes. So if you're happy for me to talk about you two, then yep, you can go. Crack on. Can go. Okay, right. so um, Mitch, running onto the field at Twickenham with your foot pointing in the other direction, uh, fracture dislocation of your ankle um, was a pretty nasty injury. Um, putting that foot back into place. Um, I remember it well. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do. Um, so, yeah, when we were on field, we had to put that back into place. That was about as gory as they can get on a rugby field, to be honest. Um, obviously, there are worse injuries, but in rugby, that that is about as bad as it can get. And Chippy... It, it, before we move on real quick, is that why when he kicks, the ball just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't go where it's supposed to? 
<laughs> put it on the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it makes sense. It all makes sense now. And then I guess from the other side of things, with rugby being obviously a major contact sport, Chip, you decided to nearly die on me last year in Dubai um, when you decided yeah. to stop breathing on the pitch. Um, so that that was that was pretty horrific. So I guess on the rugby field, um, those two injuries would be pretty significant. Is um, it true that you were singing Oasis when you came out? Of course. <laughs> I, I had a very little... I remember... No, not really. I don't remember even coming on the pitch. And then I just remember being in the back of the ambulance and like Ren being like, oh, don't worry, it's all right. We're, we're on the way to hospital. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. What, what, ex- what exactly happened? What was the incident? I... Um, Mitch's fault again. I took a short ball off Mitch and got through the first tackle. And as I got through, he like whipped my legs back. Um, so like I thought I was hitting the deck and as I'm going down, my head's just smashed off the off the ground. Um, and then I like tried to get up and re- like uh, to, to carry on playing. Obviously, I was completely knocked out. And then when Remy got me up, I was like, yeah, not in a great place. Um, and I don't remember after that really but yeah it, was, it took me a while to get off the pitch didn't it I think Rem and then singing Oasis and trying to jump and... but in terms of your ability to be composed under pressure is, is amazing that's probably quite a nice time to to shimmy over to UKT like when you first came into what was your first experience of rugby because you'd obviously been in other sports as well and, and I think it's fair to say you, you didn't you don't you didn't know a lot about rugby when you started joining um, so before joining you boys, I was working mainly in individual sports in canoe slalom, which is a, a really niche sport. Like people might not necessarily have even heard of it, but it's amazing in terms of the decision making pressures that are on the athletes and the way they navigate incredibly powerful white water. So I was really immersed in, in canoe slalom. Immersed, nice. Immersed, yeah. Um, and absolutely loved it. And then I got a call about the role with you boys and I seriously, I almost didn't apply because I was thinking I know nothing about rugby. I've not worked in team sport. I've not worked like exclusively with men like that um and I really kind of deliberated over it but when I came in and met some of you boys and spoke to Simon it was it was pretty awesome to be a part of so so Katie you've uh, you're involved with the canoe slalom you've done work with men's GB hockey as well do you think that like the psychological aspect of sport is transferable across all sports is it one policy catches all for all sports or do you have to tailor it for the individual athletes and the sports and the experiences that they're going through? Yeah, good, good question. And it's a bit of a yes and no answer. So the way I practice, like the boys, unfortunately, will be very familiar with the fact that I'm very passionate that we start with some neuroscience, that they understand how their brain works. And to a degree, that's true of everyone in any walk of life trying to do something performance wise. So that the understanding how your brain works and the different sort of components is, is something that's universal to my approach. But then, the, then from there on in, it really differs because you try and basically assess what the mental demands of the sport are. So, you know, in sevens particularly, sort of decision-making under pressure and fatigue is massive. Um, the, the way they communicate on pitch, the way they switch on and switch off for games is all really unique to the sevens tournament, um, which is such a, such a buzz to sort of work through. And obviously then the team dynamics. Um, so all of those things do vary sport to sport, but also people to people. Like you can imagine these two characters in front of us here require a very different approach. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> I think Bernsey feels qualified to answer this question. He feels like he's a psychologist when he's dealing with this. Yeah, trying try to like create a session that engages Dan Norton is very different to a session that engages Phil Burgess. Like, I'm still trying to figure out that out. <laughs> so I think you just try and meet the person that sat across from you and do what, what's right for them, whilst also having some things that will always hold true. 
Well, that's really interesting that you say there's different personalities to manage, but how, surely there's some standardized stuff that you need to implement in a team ethos whilst also catering for those individual uniquenesses, if uniquenesses is a word. Um, it's not. You know, because you, you have to have standards that everyone abides by, but you have to give people leeway. I think let's talk about the Chicago Bulls documentary one last time because we haven't mentioned it for a while. The, the coach says about Dennis Rodman, he says, Dennis is a maverick. We had to go and let him be a maverick and that's how we were going to get the best out of Dennis. So how do you allow someone to express themselves whilst also playing by the team rules? Yeah, massive, massive question. Like To a degree, Remy was the maverick in our team and Simon, the head coach, and I used to have conversations about how to manage him and when he needed, like you actually went, not to Vegas, but you went on a trip to the States when, when I think people that are very intense about their craft, whether it's a member of staff or a player, they need time that they can then let off steam, like whether it's Rodman going to Vegas or Remy going to wherever it New was, York. New York, that he went to. So, yeah. and I remember Simon saying to me that to get the best out of Remy, we, we do have to flex um, some of the some of the principles. But I think what the, <laughs> what the sevens was, was, was so amazing at was that we, um, when the players led it, they created a shared culture and a set of values that they were passionate about. Within those values, there's real opportunity to express your individuality and particularly like, you know, Ollie Lindsay Haig, like flair and creativity is at the heart of his game. And then you've got someone, Mitch, with sort of his his depth of character and his philosophy and values that need to be also honoured and, and sort of celebrated. So you try and create, like, think of it like a postcode area. So we live in TW11. Perhaps that represents the culture. Money. It's a different... <laughs> <laughs> There's heaps of different roads within that postcode area where a player could express themselves differently. And it, I think that is really, it's a really subtle balance to get right. You've captured something that's pretty awesome. I think we're quite familiar with it in sevens is that we try and really try and promote like the individuality and value that in a, in a team environment. Obviously you came from working with a lot of individual athletes. So in some ways you were perfectly positioned to come in and work with a lot of individual athletes who actually made up a team. And that's probably why we've been able to, well, a massive reason anyway, that we've been able to foster this culture where we prize the individuality in a team context. Um, do you remember going back now, I know this might be a bit of a test, but in the sort of journey of the England sevens, like, psychology growth i mean we've touched on a few things over different pods but do you remember like any breakthrough moments or moments where you really felt as a as the as the psychologist the practitioner like oh this is this is great like i think we're making some good progress with these guys yeah well I, I, heaps of stuff that i remember i think well, certainly the the early work with you mitch because in that first year don't I remember, give him that credit oh no because he was so terrible you've got to start low yeah no. Everyone can grow. You, you just took your easy wins with me, didn't you? The low-hanging fruit. So in that first year, I think Simon gave me yourself, Marcus, um, and a couple of the other boys. And so there were a couple of moments where I think through the one-to-one -one relationships that we were able to build up, and then in group workshops when they inevitably you have those tumbleweed moments and no one's really saying anything, that the boys that I'd worked with on a more one-to-one -one level would find their voice in those moments and sort of dare to speak up and speak their truth. And because you told them to. And paid them a good... <laughs> paid them a, a good, good one. <laughs> so, you, Katie, you've been planting answers. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I think um, the one moment, which I'm pretty sure I'm comfortable talking about, because I've heard Noughts himself talk about on a podcast, I think it was with Rusty perhaps, um, but there was a workshop where we were talking about like real honesty and openness and working through difficult thoughts that might hold you back from the performance that you're capable of. And he shared a few things that he would sometimes experience in the tunnel. And I remember for, for such a successful, well-respected, incredible, and very annoying, obviously, athlete to speak so honestly that he also had doubts and vulnerabilities it created permission for everyone else to then be a lot more open and honest. And I remember watching that with complete admiration 
at his courage and also complete love for you boys that you you were receptive to it that you didn't of course there's always going to be a bit of banter thank god but you actually like create space for him to be so authentic and that you can, it's just gold dust I'm such a privilege to watch that unfold with you boys with notes he's kind of like the worst best bloke you can ever meet isn't he? So like in a group, he's the like worst bloke you can ever think of. He'll pick on your vulnerabilities. He'll absolutely hammer you. But I experienced it firsthand last year in Colombia's. Um, for some reason, before we were playing in the on the first day, um, I was thinking in the tunnel before games. I was like, I know it sounds stupid. I was like, I'm too fat to be in this team. I've put on too much weight. I can't. I can't play. I, I'm not going to be quick because I'm too fat. And my skinnies are too high. This is this is affecting me. And then he came and, and I told him. And then in, in, in the evening, he rang me. He's like, come round to my room. And he came round and proper like sat me down. And he was like, gave me a chocolate bar. <laughs> said, listen, you're fat and you're good. No, no, yeah, he did. But like he, he he does come through, and obviously that's testament to all the work you've done with him, Katie. That he's kind of now pushing on and uh, taking on that role of helping out other people. The best worst I, bloke. I remember that moment. I remember when he shared that in the workshop, and I found it it was definitely transformative for me. And I think Chippy, the thing you're talking about is bang on. Like hopefully all of us who have benefited from the years of working with you, Katie, the workshops, as you then kind of share the knowledge and spread the knowledge, you know, out, which is I guess the secret of of building a um, building a team that has longevity, I guess. I'm such a believer that like at least 25% of what I bring to your team is creating permission for you to learn from each other because you guys have way more experience and knowledge and passion within you than, than kind of that you need input from someone else. It's more about creating an environment where you can really be honest with each other. And then as, we, as we've seen, magic stuff can happen. That's the interesting thing with professional sport though, isn't it? Like professional sport, because if that was your local club and there was a guy who just wanted to do his own thing, you'd be out because you buy in or you, you know or not. Whereas professional sport, as you say, Rem, if you deliver on the field, can you be skillful enough in your environment to accommodate that person, integrate do, that person? Do you, do you sacrifice the team culture and how everyone else is thinking to performance? I, I have worked with a team where we had an exceptional athlete that say, this is completely made up, but just to try and make it easy to talk about, they bring 20% to the team. But in bringing 20%, they take away 30% because of the impact they have on the rest of the team. So their overall impact is minus 10. And, and whilst they're world-class, there was this one player in particular who was unequivocally one of the best in the world. Mm. The team won more without him in it. So I think it is. Um, it depends on what the impact of that person is and a lot of it is about the the skills of the practitioner team you've got to be incredibly i found incredibly experienced in my early years i had a similar sort of experience and i wasn't experienced enough i got too caught in the drama of it too caught trying to change that individual and it was pretty painful for all Mm. of us whereas i think over the years of my career i you start to learn who you can coach it can you coach them in this time frame what is the wriggle room that we can allow? So I, I don't want to keep referencing back to noughts, but, you know, with noughts, you, we need to allow some wriggle room in one-to-one sessions or in group sessions for him to to make us all laugh, for him to be um, the funny guy that is just sort of so incredibly quick with some of his mm. banter. And sometimes in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, but we need to crack on with this because we're trying to get to a point in this particular meeting and noughts has just taken us off to the side. But it's worth it because we know that at the end of the day, He's got a great heart. He absolutely cares about this team. There enough things are in place to allow us him that to allow him that wriggle room. Whereas if he wasn't giving it everything on the pitch, 
preparing as best he can for tournaments, then we would have been less tolerant of his of his wriggle room. So I think it depends on kind of the whole picture and the emo- the emotional intelligence of the group to understand what's really going on and what the true intentions are of that person. I don't know if that makes sense. Because I, I love, I yeah. personally love those players. Same in the men's hockey team. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love the ones that are more challenging because that's, that's, that's what you train for is to mm-hmm. be able to engage those kinds of characters. Because and the worst thing you'd want is a team of robots who all think and feel and yeah. act the same way. Like, wow, right, there's no, yeah, there's yeah, no magic to that. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's, a, it's a complex one. A lot of it sounds the skill of the head coach as well. Like, and the skill of the management team. When I said about um, trying not to manage them, I think it's the skill of managing them without them feeling like they're being managed. I yeah. think that probably yeah, expresses exactly. that, that probably expresses yeah. it a bit better. Yeah. In terms of those those players that are slightly maverick, it's about having the soft skills to manage them without them realise they're being managed. Mm. Definitely, definitely. Great fun. One night in heaven, one night in heaven. Uh, do you remember when we, this is going way back again, and sorry, I'm diving into it. Burnsy, I'll let you in in a sec. Um, he's itching to get in. Um, I remember quite a chipper. You played in Wellington. We were both in that team and we lost in the final against New Zealand in Wellington, maybe, maybe 2014 or 15. And we came back and, and we had a workshop and we, did, we talked about it. And a lot of us had found that experience really rewarding. And actually understanding how we could find that a rewarding experience, even though we didn't win the tournament, was and it sounds so straightforward now, but almost giving ourselves the permission to be like, we recognize we put everything into it. We did what we could and we were beaten by a better team on the day. But actually for that to really sink in was, uh, was pretty powerful because coming back to the original topic about why sevens is so tough is there are so many highs and lows. And if you're only going to feel all right with yourself when you win and you win tournaments, it's a hell of a, it's a hell of a tough ride to go on. Um, so that was something I think we as a group have understood over time. Thanks to your help is how to separate the outcome from the, from the inputs and the process, um, which is so important in sevens. It, people who have done it know that those six games across a weekend is such a roller coaster ride and it's incredibly draining emotionally no matter how skillful you are at, at handling it um and so that ability to just manage that is is super important and something that i think we've all found really beneficial can you give us an idea of how frequently you work with the team on the mental aspect of the game it so varies and also because i've had the, the privilege of being with the team for six years now um, in the beginning, it was very intensive, quite educational and quite trying to build up their understanding of the psychology and the mental skills side with quite a lot of kind of, um, they were very tolerant of uh, boring workshops. <laughs> mm. um, and so I think we did like one every two to three weeks in the first year, really upskilling them. And to the point where like now some of these boys like Mitch, you, you know, your knowledge of, of psychology and the brain and and is 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 elite, really, really elite. Um so then it it kind of flexes and there'd be some players that I'd work intensely with on a weekly basis and others that I wouldn't see all season because they just perhaps it wasn't an area that they were really looking to invest in or they had to prioritise perhaps their physical or tactical elements. So one of the things that I, I really believe in is important that we operate a really flexible model. It's never forced on a player. There are some times where you know, if, the, if you've got a player that you can see it's really holding them back, but they're resistant to engaging, then we try and find creative ways, perhaps work through the coach, through the physio. I mean, some of the best work is done through the physio particularly during rehab for example um so it's it really really varies um just to clarify i'm not a psychologist but you're the mole you're at the uh, you're at the coalface though aren't you i mean i'm not trying to 
give you qualifications you haven't got Remy but but it's an interesting dynamic like shit coming back to you because you are working with players very closely arguably the physio is probably the most hands-on and the most face-to-face contact with the players um especially when they're injured I know you've always loved doing the the rehab side bringing players back from injury to feel fitness full fitness so how, how have you found that experience over the years doing the rehab why do you enjoy that and like obviously kind of blurring the lines a little bit here, but what is the mental side of that like for you and for the player as well? Katie can probably give you a better insight as my <laughs> wife, what the what the mental effects happen to me when I get back home after a day of work, um, because it can be draining, because I guess for the rehab process to be successful, you have to give it everything you've got. You've got to connect with the player. Um, and I guess that my cultural background and my sporting background from different um elite sports has given me the tools in my locker to deal with all personalities um and i think that connection is so important um probably more important than the physio skills because um i think without the connection you then no matter how good you are as a physio if that player doesn't trust you with effectively their career, in some cases, Mitch, with your ankle and your leg, uh, Chip. Your life. Your <laughs> life. With the Commonwealth Games, though, Rem, on, the, on that. Yeah. If, if you've not got that connection, that honesty, um, the ability to put your hands up when you're dealing with an injury and you're like, do you know what? I'm not sure I'm going to send you to someone else. Um, that complete honesty... Um, I don't think that I would have been as successful as I have been in my career because I think that comes first. And then the physio skills, which, you know, I've seen so many physios that have got good physio skills, but they don't have the connection. And then vice versa, I've seen physios that have got the connection, but haven't got the physio skills to back it up. Um, And I've seen physios that don't have either. Um, But... (laughs) But no, it's, it's, it's so important um, because you're working so intensely with that athlete day in, day out. And the whole rehab process is an absolute roller coaster ride um, for the athlete. But what's really important is, is that you don't go on that ride completely with them. You stay platonic almost. Um, and like, you know, you, you don't go on the lows with them. You don't go on the highs with them because what they're looking for is someone that is really grounded in being able to deliver an absolute elite professional service. And I think, I think that would probably be, um, I go on the emotional rides with you, but I don't show it. I show it when I get home. And, um, if I'm going to be really honest, I've broken down at home because something's not gone quite right in a rehab process, but you guys would never see that. Um, and, and then I come home and I'm, you like, you know, you guys sound grumpy Rem the physio and I come home. Mardi Rem. Yeah. Mardi Rem. Um, (laughs) and I come home and I'm screaming with joy because something has gone absolutely amazingly well to a T. Does that answer your question? Probably not. I, I don't know, but I was just, I was just listening and enjoying it. I can't even remember what the question was. (laughs) This, this is a kind of question for kind of everyone apart from the Martha Disciples Burnsy. Now I suppose you can weigh in as well. Um, with a long-term injury, do you think like mentally and physically like you ever can properly recover from it? 
Is that a, a tough question, Mitch? Like you've had some bad injuries. Rem, you've seen a load. And Katie, you've dealt with loads of people who've had long-term serious injuries to rehab back from. That process, obviously, like from personal experience, you dip first and then you try and come back. But do you, do you reckon you ever hit physically and mentally the same shape again? I think that if you're working with the right person, mm. um, with your right experience, that knows when to push, when to pull on the rehab process, um, and with modern day medical technology, I, f- I think that any injury or most injuries are recoverable. Of course, you've got your anomalies, but from a physical point of view, I think that if you're working with a team that is elite in their practice, from a physical point of view, I'd like to think there are not many injuries that are not recoverable physically. Something we've debated many a time over dinner because we're a bit sad. <laughs> um, of the link between the mind and the body. And I think we saw like, the, you know, one of when there was a player that one of the things we see is like when you've got timeframes and deadlines that you're always trying to get back to the next tournament, the next selection point, you try and accelerate the physical healing process. And then the mind becomes a real stressor there. And the more stressed you are, the slower your body heals. That's just that science. Like even something simple as when you have a cut, if you're stressed, it can take a couple of weeks longer to heal than if you're not. Um, so we know like from empirical evidence, we know that that's the case. And for most athletes, they don't have the luxury of time. So it, uh, that's there was one canoe slalom athlete back in sort of 2013 that I was working with. who was a, an amazing lady. She's a, a world medalist and Olympian. And she was so plagued by injuries that she was about to retire. And we, the whole sort of multidisciplinary team took a really tough decision to basically pull her from the water for 12 months, which is you know, 12 months from the sport and the moment and the flow that you love so much is, is so tough, was so tough for her. But that allowed us to basically work with the best medical team available to rebuild her body. And she went on to achieve objective tests in terms of strength and power and speed way beyond what she what she ever did before. And mentally as well, like she found a freedom in that year that was really amazing to watch. So I think when when you're brave enough to do the right thing for the athlete and if, if you're fortunate enough to have the time, you can actually come back stronger. But for lots of athletes, if they haven't got the right support, and particularly if you think like most sports have a physio then who's with you day in, day out, and and they may or may not have a psychologist, and the the physical recovery and the mental recovery don't necessarily happen on the same pace, and there's a lot less support for the mental side. So I think it's something that's kind Mm. of mixed up a bit. But you do so much work in a focused area that you you come back actually stronger in a lot of ways, and that you've got all that time off pitch, so... Any other weaknesses, any other kind of uh, anything that's uneven, you can work on that. So I found that actually I came back stronger in a lot of ways. I mean, don't get me wrong. If I could go back and skip a couple of the injuries, then I'll probably do it. But but mentally, certainly like without those injury periods and then the support through them, I wouldn't have learned half and I wouldn't be as good a player leader teammate any of the above without those periods so uh, you know as you said rem if you're given the right support and if it's done properly then then there's you can be as good but probably better than before i think i think that's a really important point you make mitch and um one of my biggest bugbears is this phrase that is knocked around in the medical world about return to play and it's definitely not in my philosophy of that's what the phrase is. It's not about getting an athlete just to return to play. Mm. First of all, the injury that happens, as you've kind of hinted on there, is a massive opportunity to get better. And it's definitely not a return to play. It's a return to perform. You don't just want to put that athlete 
um, back in the cowboy Western world, armed with a knife. You need them back there, loaded, ready to sling a gun shoot and the shotgun. Yeah. And and you're you're putting them back onto that pitch, ready to perform, not just a case of they're ready to play. Definitely. But that's where me and you butt heads because I my attitude has always been get me back on that pitch, get me back on the pitch. I don't, Rem, if it hurts, I don't really mind as long as I can use, as long as I can use it. And that's where me and you go back and forth and you're pulling me back. Relax, relax this. But like, but we've, I've, I've grown over the years with that. Yeah, because you know, Chip, that in that moment that you're ready to play. And I know that in that moment that you're not ready to perform. The standards that I would accept. So I guess you want to play and you probably could, but I don't want to put you out there until I know that you're ready to perform as Richard de Carpentier does. This is why we got him on. This is why I preach. <laughs> it's, the, it's the attitude of the player, you know, above all. It's it, and you two are exceptional at that. Most of of your teammates are as well it's that that kind of diligence and that desire to work hard and not to shirk it and not to lie to yourselves or to your team and that's just your strength overplayed your passion for the game and your hardiness overplayed means you want to get back before you're maybe ready I, so i think we touched on the demands on the body like the jeopardy the propensity for injury attached to seven so Rem, i want to ask you is there another sport as physically all-encompassing as sevens what about Cirque du Soleil? I was talking about the RFU with the circus sword. <laughs> um, okay, what what comes close? Um, from from my experience, I think AFL comes close, Joe. Um, just from the fact with the amount of running loads that those boys do, I would say that that's fairly equivocal. Is that even a word? Uh, equivalent. 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 Cheers. Um, that's fairly equivalent to the sevens Did boys. Did you go to Oxford, Mitch? <laughs> Briefly. It's just like Cambridge. <laughs> no, but I think I think AFL comes close, Joe, um, from the fact of the running loads that those boys need to do alongside with the opportunities that they have to accelerate because of the amount of space they have. Because, I mean, that's such a big thing for sevens, right? There's only seven players on each team. So the amount of space that they've got gives them so much opportunity to accelerate and reach those top speeds. I mean, our boys on a weekly basis, can't speak for all of them, but for the majority of our boys on a weekly basis, are hitting um, speeds of 35k an hour plus. I like it, Chip. No, no, you know that. You know I'm on that as well. That's me. Um, and then, and then on a weekend, you know, the likes of Dan Norton are hitting 37, 37.5s. And, and that's that's running away from me so I didn't have to do psychology <laughs> you know I guess from those physical qualities Joe um, AFL comes close um, but the difference is I guess is the contact element of the sevens game um, we're seeing it in the injury studies that are being produced you know it's it's a brutal brutal game it's more brutal than 15s that's for sure um, the injuries that are created are similar However, what we call the severity of the injuries and the injury burdens, i.e., you know, like how long an athlete is out for, are significantly higher in sevens compared to the 15s game. And that is basically simple science, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. And the amount of force that these guys are producing, you know, they're all averaging 90 kg, which isn't too dissimilar to 15s players, maybe a bit lighter. 
But the difference is, Joe, is the speeds that these guys are traveling. You know, everybody on that team are flying at 35k an hour plus, and you you see that maybe in sparks of play in 15s, but you wouldn't see it as regularly on a, as as on a sevens pitch. I think that'll be such a surprise to so many listeners that sevens is more physically demanding than 15s. I think a lot of people would look at those collisions and think that 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 is where you're going to get the most injuries. And Katie, looking at the the mental aspect, is uh, we've spoken about this before on the pod, Mitch, Chip, and I, or I've asked them, how do you simulate that pressure cooker moment in a game? I'm thinking for Mitch, a big kick, or there's 30 seconds left on the clock. You're, defend you're defending the line and you're leading by one point and one mistake could cost your side the match. How do you train the mind to be able to react positively in those situations? It, it's, um, it's, I think it's something that we should be as a whole team and squad incredibly proud of that I think when we were at our sort of peak and you boys were, you know, with a really experienced squad before some of the younger guys came through and were naturally learning how to behave and make decisions in those pressure moments was that you had a real reputation for stealing victory from the jaws of, the t of defeat and coming back in extra time or winning that, you know, the, the quarterfinal at the World Cup will go down in history as one of the most incredible moments of composure. The, the Olympic Games against Argentina as well, like it, just some incredible moments of composure and, and cool decision-making under pressure. I think, to be quite frank, you could ask 10 psychologists, you might get 10 different answers. I don't believe you can ever recreate that pressure in training. You can definitely try and do things that make it more uncomfortable so you can put judgment around it. You can put consequences. The thing that's most important probably with sevens is the, the deep physical fatigue. So like the death zone sessions that the boys yeah. would, would be able to talk more about. Yeah, Joe, Katie's, Katie's not giving herself enough credit for this. I'm, I'm just going to throw it right out there. Uh, back in back in 2014, when Katie started, yeah, 14, um, Simon Amor um, realised that we needed to create sessions that simulated a sevens final. So what mm. Simon did was he sat down with Katie and one of the most amazing practitioners I've ever worked with, uh, an SNC called Dan Howes. And what they did was um, between the three of them, and you're right, yeah, I can go this, and credit to all three of them. So Simon went to Dan and he said to Dan, Dan, I need to know that in a worst case scenario, what are the stats for the boys in a final in terms of how they need to run? And so Dan gave him those stats. And then he said to Katie the same thing. He's like, how do we recreate that stress? So basically out of that evolved a training session called the death zone. Um, and it sticks to even today. And we have practitioners from other sports that come to view our death zone sessions and they leave gobsmacked with how we recreate the sessions. So it's your fault, Katie. That's, yeah, this is I, just this is coming, coming out, out now. now. It's the, all coming the, out of the wash. Oh. I've been blaming Simon all these years. And me. Between, welcome. <laughs> between, between Simon, Housie and yeah, Katie. Simon um, yeah, I definitely think that we created these sessions, Joe, which were just horrific. So in training, Dan would be at the side of the pitch with the live GPS and he would be communicating to Simon as to, to who to push, who to pull, when Mitch needs to take a kick because he'd just done 200 metres of high speed running. And, you know, we would go to levels that would never, ever, ever have been reached in a game. 
Um, and basically, I would say that that's how we recreate it um, in, a, in a training environment. I don't know they, if you remember they, this as well. We went through a period of um, real experimentation. So we used to do a lot of some scenario planning before you get out to a tournament. So I'm a big believer that like you've got to, there is a cognitive element to it, which is a bit boring because the boys just want to play rugby. But they have got to program their brains to respond with certain sort of decision making styles under pressure. And we used to do random sessions where they had to stand in a bin of ice cold water and re repeat how they would want to respond in certain scenarios. We did one with like a fire alarm going off. So it's distracting and a bit stress producing mentally. So just trying to experiment mm. with different ways. But the bit, it's not as sexy and funny, but uh, as interesting. But the bit that I think is the most powerful is their perspective. So if they can choose to see those pressure moments as a privilege, as something that is an opportunity for them to shine, to express themselves, and above all, to know that their self-worth is not on the line in that moment, then you transform that moment into something that's an awful lot less stressful and, and, and almost exciting. And then your brain opens up and you can make more intelligent decisions more easily. And you can sort of train, you know, to deliver what you want to deliver um, when it matters most. And I guess Simon, Simon in these sessions, Joe, he would be amazing. He would be the referee, Incredible. and he would notice that a player was physically under stress, and he would then mentally test them. So he would randomly just just blow up and say penalty against you because you did this. They hadn't done that, and he would all done. Chippy normally had done it. That was my Actually. idea. Chip, who's normally getting yellow cards to simulate what was happening. I think the, the other thing, though, we like, uh, and you're bang on, Katie, with that. Uh, that really resonates in terms of the player experience with how it, how those sessions landed. But it just gave us such confidence as well. Like once you're going into a tournament, you're like, well, we've done this in training. So whatever happens in this game, we know it's not going to probably be as hard as that session. Um, and we'll just see, you know, what what unravels. And we kind of we've been there and we're ready for it. And I think that was something we took from those sessions was just massive confidence. And and they're my favorite sessions. Like they're fun because you come off it and you're like, I've worked really hard. I've emptied the tank. Um, and sometimes when Simon was penalizing you and stuff, like you're stressed in the middle of it and you're angry and you're like, piss off. I didn't do that. I don't want to go and run around the post because I haven't done anything wrong. Um, but then afterwards, you're like, ah, Oh, okay. My mind will do that sometimes. So then when that, you know, you do that enough times in training, when that happens in a game and you get penalized by the referee, Chippy and I've been there numerous times, haven't we? You're like, you know, you kind of like, there's something in your brain that you've just managed to stop yourself from telling the ref to piss off. And you're like, oh no, I've been here before. Let's just get on with it. One night in heaven, one night, one night With the football heaven, and the rugby, both of, and Katie as well, obviously you've worked across um, loads of different sports. Have there been any like attributes or like things you've seen in like commonalities between the athletes at the top of their game? So like, if there's one kind of trend, one kind of thing you'd say, I know it's tough to say, if you get this, you're going to be successful. But one thing you've noticed in really successful athletes. Um, I guess from on reflection, an absolute drive that can't be described um, in terms of the attention to detail um, for everything from on and off the pitch um the best of the best you'll notice that they question everything they want they're like sponges they want to absorb all information that they can get whether that be from the coach the physio the nutritionist the analyst um and they're just so it's obvious they stick out like sore thumbs they're just so dedicated to their bodies the game but also i guess 
I, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but this, especially in team sports, this selflessness mm. um, and, you know, really wanting to make sure that not only they're successful, but the team are successful. Um, and I would say that that was true in a lot of the leaders that I've worked with and, and the sports professionals. And I guess if you're going from an injury physio point of view, um, those athletes that pay the attention to that firing up before they go out onto the pitch, um, you know, it's that extra rep in the gym with, that they don't shirk, um, doing all of those boring prehab type exercises that they do meticulously. Mm. Um, I guess from a physio point of view, they're the type of qualities that I see in the best of the best. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it, it's we heard it described um some documentary you watched during lockdown. It was described as the rage was it to the, master. The, the, the Jordan one. No, not the Jordan <laughs> one. So the, the rage to master. And it's like just the absolute passion for the sport, whether it's whether it for some it's because they want to win, but un, underneath that is something much, much deeper of mastery of how can I really become exceptional at this sport and just loving the process of that. Because to become world class is actually it, incredibly difficult and and at times quite boring because you're having to push yourself in training again 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 but not just the amount of training you do but the quality of that practice and the mo and the majority of that practice actually has to be quite uncomfortable so you've got to really you've got to be absorbed in it you've got to be fascinated by how you develop those skills i'm thinking about like etienne stott and can slalom and barry middleton and hockey um you boys just the absolute absorption in the day-to-day -day training that then sets you up for greatness when the lights are on and the crowds are around is, mm. is what sets you apart. And a massive love for the game because mm. I think to do what we do, to do what you do, Did. if Did. you've not, yeah, you, if, if you've not got the love and a, yeah. a horrific passion <laughs> for, for being the best, you you just don't have the stamina to go through and repeat that day in day out week in all through the season and then go again season on season on season um yeah a love and passion for what they do as well yeah like that. Like me up like that like that okay look we spent a lot of time talking about the top end but uh we got a lot of young listeners to the pod and I'd like to talk about emerging athletes. So there's been this story that's come out of Australia this week about a player called Joseph Suwali. Anyone seen this? Anyone seen this? Okay, right. So he's 16 years old. He's come up through the rugby league ranks playing for South Sydney Rabbitohs. And Rugby Australia have just offered him a $3 million contract over three years. I didn't and think Australian rugby had that sort of money. They don't have any money. They don't even have a TV deal at the moment, but they're throwing money at this kid because they think, to use an Australianism, he's a freak, uh, he's something special. And the goal is to fast track him into the Waratahs when he turns 17, which is very soon, and then get him into the Aussie Sevens team in time for the Tokyo Olympics. For then I mean, Sevens to crush his dreams. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yes. Team GB, Team GB, Edit that. Edit <laughs> that. Team GB7 <laughs> to crush his dream. Correct. So, so, what, so what I want to know is what are the physical and mental indicators at that age? Like, can you be so sure to throw $3 million at an adolescent prospect when assessing whether they'll be the next big thing? It just seems mad. So before COVID happened, Joe, we were due to do a Red Bull, what's the word called, Chip? Combine. 
Come, Come on, on. yeah. Uh, Red Bull were going to sponsor um, for England Rugby Sevens to perform a combine across different age age groups to basically find what this next athlete or who, who they were going to be. And one of or some of the key qualities that Tom, our S&C, would have been looking for would have been obviously physical stature. Um, but definitely speed and their power to body weight ratio and to see how much growth or potential they had to then grow on and be better in those specific qualities. Um, Obviously, rugby skills or basic set of rugby skills are important, but that that quality of speed and power to body weight ratio, um, I think are key components for the S&Cs to know whether someone's got potential to be an amazing athlete or not. Um, yeah. So, and, and from the mental point of view, it's a really interesting one because we've done a couple of talent development camps over my time with Sevens and we would, we would, we had a system where I would be looking for certain things from a psychological point of view. And obviously Simon, our head coach would be looking at certain things from a rugby point of view. And then um, it sounds crude, but it was always done with, with care and respect to the individuals involved, but you effectively would have to rank the players that have come through that talent day as to who you thought had the most potential to, to grow and thrive within the sevens program. And normally the name at the top of Simon's list was at the bottom of my list. And mm. normally Simon would then turn to me and say, okay, good luck with that. Cause we're going to bring him on <laughs> because actually the, the, the body and the mind are not necessarily on the same mm. trajectory, especially at that age, especially at that age, because the, the adolescent brain and adolescence actually is right up till your kind of mid twenties. So you know, Chip, you're only just out of there. Uh, <laughs> um, it's so much change is going to happen during mm. that time. So many different brain developments that yeah. it, oh, I'd be, yeah, I'm not, it makes me feel uncomfortable. And I hope he doesn't mind okay. me talking. I hope he doesn't mind me talking about him. Um, and I'm sure he won't, but Ben Harris is, yeah, is, is an amazing example of that. Chip, Chip taught him everything he knows. Exactly. So he had You're welcome, Benny. But, you know, he came into our program um, and aerobically he was one of the most unfit. Was he? Um, yeah, for sure. And uh, he, you and know, room to grow. I guess room to grow from a culture and mental point of view. And he came into our program. Chip took him under his wings. Chip, this is all on you, bud, for the great work that you've done with him. Great, he is. And basically... Um, you know, Tom Farrow could see potential in him. He was fast and he was a big lad and he could produce a lot of power. And Tom could see that we could get so much more out of him. And then he's gone on to the World Series and had an absolute amazing first season. And I played a big part in Olympic qualifying. Yeah, and if yeah. and if I'm honest, does surprise definitely beautiful all story. of the staff. And it's amazing. a it's a beautiful story, Human Joe. Potential. So um What's the what's the cutoff though, do we think? So like Obviously, football's... Can I just go back to where we just were? Because I think it's quite important as well, just the, the, the risk with what they've done there with that chap in Australia is they actually change his motivation. So by putting mm. so much money on it, the very thing that was driving him to potentially be exceptional, they've now almost like diverted its course and it's become now slightly more extrinsic, which actually could take him short of his potential. And we'll never know that. But Especially now people know it and he knows it as well. Like it's, I'm sure it's, it's 16. Like they could have easily kept that under wraps, or or give or not told him about it. Just said, "Here's like you're going to be." Because what's he not living on his own at 16? Is he? He's probably still living at home. I, don't, I mean, I don't know, but it's still, like he's out, he's actually in a bit of a tug of war between the Australian Rugby League and Rugby Australia. But what would what are those key indicators that you spoke of 
that you look for from a psychological side when assessing young talent? Yeah, so on that training on that training day, what what do you like? Don't be a dick. Like it's like <laughs> let's, it's a bit more than that. Let, <laughs> but generally that's what it boils down to, I guess. A lot mm. of it is is the so the technical term you'd be looking at is like delayed gratification, which is a bit <laughs> jargonistic, but basically just yeah. means can they can they endure suffering in the short term? for a longer term gain. So, you know, fitness testing, all the all of the fitness work these boys have to do is incredibly difficult, painful, challenging. The reward comes later on when they're able to make great decisions and make great plays in deep into the 13th, 14th minute, yeah, and lift trophies. So delayed gratification is something you can test for um, at a younger age, but also the, the stuff we were talking about, the drive, the passion for the sport, the willingness to learn, the ability to take on board feedback and not react too emotionally to it. Um, and also, above all, the ability to recognise that they can improve through through effort and through kind of deliberate practice, all those things you can you can test for at that age. Uh, but I don't really I really don't advocate the use of psych as a selection tool on that basis because it's so hugely developable, as we've just said. What it tells you is how much investment and what what time frame might be required to get someone to an elite level. Um, all right, let's let's try and wind it back to the Olympics because that's what's around. Well, that's what should be around the corner, and that's what we're trying to gear this towards. Would you have prepared the boys differently for the Olympics if it was to be happening on Tuesday, or would you have treated it like any other tournament? Because you hear that phrase in the media from players and coaches alike when they it's the World Cup final. They say it's just another game of rugby. It's not another game of rugby. It's the big one. So how do, how do you acknowledge that it's the big one without shaking the foundations too much? So there's a Ben Ainsley quote. I, I won't get it right. But Saw him the other day, by the way. Yeah, my, it's fell away. Me and Ben Ainsley are mock us now, don't we? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and he, well, anyway, he's, a, he's an epic, epic athlete, incredibly successful at the Olympics. And he, he was quoted as saying, everyone wants to treat the Olympics like it's any other tournament, except it's completely different. And so you have to like, the way we certainly way we prepared for Rio was to acknowledge all the ways in which it's different. And you need to do that sufficiently out from the games that people still have their minds open to learning and being able to sort of choose their perspective. So go through all the ways in which it's a circus and all the ways in which the setup of the Olympics is designed to actually create mental pressure and create mental hijacks and undermine you. And once you've worked through that, then you can come back to the facts are, which is that it is exactly the same as any other tournament. Mm. And so you can get there, but you kind of have to go the long way round. In, in my experience that then you can create the conditions for athletes to put their absolute best performances down when it matters, which is uh, what it's all about. Wow, that's a good answer. God, you're going to need the recording for that answer. That for your catalogue, your portfolio. Woo! Is that similar to what Robbo spoke about um, week before last about when you did the mental prep for Rio with Simon? You know, you talked about the stresses and the strains or was that just another exercise? Or was it different? Yeah, I, d- I definitely, I mean, when he mentioned that, I was casting my mind back. We definitely went through, one of the distractions was around the, the press stuff because we were in a unique position as, as the GB team of going in seemingly underprepared and written off and being a squad that had only been together for weeks as opposed to months for the other teams, years in some cases. Um, so we went through some of the headlines, I think, that were going to come out or had come out. Um, 
And that was what he was talking about. And all that was was basically to digest the distraction, process the distraction, as just as Katie says. So when you're actually running out onto the pitch, it is just a grass surface with the same lines and the same poles that you that you've played on numerous times. And actually the clutter has kind of been dealt with. Yeah. And you know, like if you're, if you imagine just trying to walk in a straight line, most people would just do it pretty simply. But if you put yourself 20 feet up and now you're walking on a, on a, a sort of tightrope or whatever, balance beam. a balance beam, then you always, you then suddenly start wobbling and it all becomes, but it's exactly the same skill, but now there are consequences. So there are consequences if you fall from that height versus just if you're walking on the floor. So again, if you can take the right perspective into the Olympics, what, what are the consequences? And so for example, like, you know, what is still going to be true if you win, lose or draw, what, who is still going to love you if you win, lose or draw? What is still great about life, whatever happens mm. out there and you kind of to bring it all back down, mm. that then you are just walking straight along the floor and you can crack on and not not faff and not not trip yourself up. That was one of my like biggest learnings. When people say what's like the biggest thing you've learned in your career, I'd say it was that after the Olympics when me and you did a load of work together and just about that whole sense of perspective and how... As you as you were just saying, there's there are consequences to rugby, but at the same time, people still love you. It doesn't matter if you drop a pass or or don't get picked, even like yeah. But there's there's a million different things going on. But you just got to remember that rugby is just one part of your life, and there's a million other pieces. So that's one of my big learnings. Whenever I speak to people, and they say, "Yeah." I've got one last quick question for you, Remy. Remy, who's the most impressive physical specimen you've worked with? Don't, Remy, go on. Uh, apart from Chip, obviously, that's like written. Uh, apart from Chip and Mitch, yeah. Apart from Chippy, um, would have to be either Dan Norton Rudders. or Phil Burgess on the fact that um, not only the physical qualities that I'll go, I'll go with Norts. I'll go with Norts. And the reason I'm going with Norts is because of his speed as well as his physical strength, but his injury robustness um, that he is able to get through Touchwood game after game, season after season, and repeat that for as many seasons as he has um, is just, it's just unheard of in the sevens game. And I don't think the way the game's going, you'll ever find someone quite like him that is as robust as he is. So I'll go with Norps. Follow on question, weirdest, weirdest like athletic specimen you've worked with, Rem. And I'm thinking this is a circus one. Yeah, so probably a girl that worked in a circus called Gassia. Oh, look at her Instagram. Um, Incredible. Gassia Akmatovra. She's basically a contortionist, but what she can do with her body um, when we go back to that power to body weight ratio. And with two kids. um, Two two kids. kids. Um, is absolutely incredible. You know, she can put her limbs in positions that um, you can't even imagine. But not only that, when she gets into those positions, the strength that she has at those end ranges is just incredible. I just don't know how she's done it. So, yeah, contortionist from Cirque. It's definitely not the first time you guys have been mentioned on the pod. So to actually get you on officially is uh, is an honour. We are two of the best practitioners, the, well, the best practitioners I've ever worked with and undoubtedly two of the best practitioners in the world of sport and whatever walk of life you guys end up in. So uh, thank you so much for giving up the time in your busy parenting schedules as well. One night in heaven, one night in heaven. Not your ordinary pod, not with your ordinary guests, no players, no coaches, but two fascinating people. 
Amazing insight. Like that is insight into the top level of professional sport and specifically sevens where, you know, those guys are on the front line of dealing with players day to day. Um, pretty amazing stories and just great to get into their heads and, and what they've seen and experienced. Some great insight coming out of that. Um, really balanced uh, views on both like the mind and the body and how they combine. Um, also, the dynamic between the, those two as a couple is amazing. Amazing to see them bouncing off each other. Um, just good people as well. Good to have a chat to good people. Um, love what Remy was saying about that rage to perform, like just about ha having the will to the desire, like what sets people apart, the desire to be better, to, to do the details, do the graft, get it all done, really actually kind of fired me up. So every time we have a chat to these inspiring people, I come off the podcast, I'm like, right, I want to go and train. I want to go and do this. I'm thinking about getting back on the pitch. I know it's stupid, but... No, I think you've captured something there because people think of support staff as facilitating the players being the players and being the ones who are motivated and doing it. But actually, if you, if you can, if you're fortunate enough, like we have been to get staff around us that actually are inspiring and, you know, take, go on to, uh, and do things above and beyond. Um, it's unbelievable the, the impact it can have on the playing group. Yeah. And we spoke about like the trust in them as well. Like it's massive with, with Katie um, coming into such a, like a, a macho environment that sevens is and basically coming out of it. And one of our like team ethos is love is about loving each other. Like to break that down in however long, four years, she's put it in there is massive. Uh, and the trust we put in her uh, and the same with Rem as well. Um, some of the injuries we, and me and you both come back from and some of the dark times he, he's been there and we, you, I put my trust in him hundred percent and he's a, he's a top bloke and, and so is Kay, top person. Like, um, they're so going to yeah. be an amazing team, aren't they? Going forward, wherever they end up. Like yeah. for Isla first and foremost, but also for whoever they work with, uh, it's awesome. Good to see and good to have them on. And there were some pearls of wisdom in there as well for uh, like young athletes coming up through the ranks, getting an insight like that. Hopefully it's useful. Million percent. Uh, we've tried to keep it short and sweet, but as ever, with guests this interesting, it is truly impossible. So thank you to Remy. Thank you to Katie. Boys, a pleasure to be in the clouds with you once again. We are going to be back this week with some Olympic treats for you. So keep an eye on our socials, namely our YouTube channel and Instagram, because we've got some special, special content for you. But boys, I think you'll agree until next time from us in seventh heaven, it is adios. Survey. Bye bye.